It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au or whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name's Matt Grantham and joining me today is Anthony Daniel. How are you today, Anthony? Good, Matt. How are you? Very good. And uh, who have we got with us today? Today we're going to be speaking to Richard McIndoe, CEO of Edge Electrons, who are a startup based here in Melbourne who are developing technologies and hardware for voltage regulation and power correction in both cleanup and to stabilise the grid. And he joins us here in the studio today. G'day, Richard. Hi, guys. Did I get your surname correct? McIndo. McIndo. Exactly. Okay, that's a lot easier. Okay, great. Now, you're fairly well known in the energy industry here in Australia, having spent um, a few years as CEO of uh, Energy Australia. But can you give us a bit of a, uh, a background on yourself and how you ended up here at um, Edge Electrons? Yeah, sure. I was at Energy Australia for over 10 years, and we built a, a very substantial business of different types of generation and retail customers. But at a time when there's a huge change coming up in the industry, obviously a lot of discussion about the environmental aspects of generation and new technology. And one of these new technologies that came across my desk was uh, the technology that we've brought to market with Edge Electrons around voltage regulation and uh, power factor correction, but particularly voltage regulation. And in having spent 30 years plus in the industry, this was the, I thought, the best technology that I'd ever seen. And it was brought to me by my partner now, Neil, uh, Neil Stewart, who's uh, had a long and accomplished career in the electronics industry. And uh, I thought this is going to be hugely disruptive in the industry, so I decided to run with it myself. I guess it's, it's that great situation where you're the CEO. People are coming to you with ideas, aren't they? I mean, you know, most of them you'd be like, God, not for us, or, God, yeah, it's been done. But that situation where you're in the middle of the industry and a lot of ideas are coming at you, sure, you have to filter them, but you get exposed to some pretty good ideas and some interesting people. Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of the people who you've had on the show here came to us at Energy Australia, and none of them have been successful, whether it's with EA or other retail. Retailers. What was interesting to me about the Edge Electrons technology was that uh, I just thought it had such application across not just customers, but such impact on both the generation and network side of the of the industry. And it was uh, really taking an old analog industry and putting a digital and 21st century technology solution to it. And Richard, we're going to talk a bit about hardware in a minute, but we're always interested in these startups. You know, how did they come about? What's the story behind this one? How was it discovered? And, and, and what's the bit of the history of to, you know, how, this, how this technology was stumbled across? Well, my partner, Neil Stewart, has been in the electronics industry for over 40 years. He's actually a Wangaratta boy and did a double degree at Melbourne University in the 60s and then uh, went to Hong Kong and built a, a company called Asia Technology. ASDEC International, I think, employed about 23,000 people they made computers. They were at the forefront of the uh, electronics revolution in the 70s and 80s. Neil was the first guy to provide Apple II computers. He built the first Apple II computer. It's in the Smithsonian Museum. Wow. There's a photo of him and, uh, and Steve outside the original Californian bungalow. So he had wow. that real longevity and experience and credibility in the electronics industry. So his, uh, he'd, he'd uh, been in retirement and then come back with looking at this technology and brought it to me and I just thought 
the credibility of the background here, his expertise in building advanced electronics, but also his expertise in manufacturing it at the lowest cost possible and having that real customer focus mm. on what we produce was, uh, was particularly attractive to me. That's amazing. Um, yeah, so f- for some of our listeners who are maybe less familiar with the, with the concepts that y- you're bringing here, now we're, we're not going to get you to explain power and voltage. I think we're past that point. Right. But can you at least briefly explain me in terms of voltage stabilization and, and power correction? What are we trying to achieve? Sure. The issue that we're addressing here is that the, the voltage on the network, the low voltage network, is extremely variable. If you are living near the substation, you'll tend to get a much higher voltage than if you're living at the end of the line. The reason is that the networks have a regulatory requirement to maintain a minimum voltage level for all of their customers. So if you're the guy out in the middle of nowhere to get your minimum 216 volts, uh, because that voltage falls away over distance as more people tap into the, uh, the network, you have to put it in at the substation at a high level, and that can be up to 253 volts. So if you live near the substation, you'll be receiving 253 volts. Now, your appliances don't require 253 volts. They only require 220 volts to run. And given that your kilowatt hours is a product of voltage multiplied by the current, very simple equation there, if you could lower the voltage, you lower the kilowatt hour consumption. That's the general premise behind it. Some appliances are more or less responsive to changes in voltage. But if every appliance you tend to target is 220 volts, and you're receiving 253 volts from the grid, you've got about a 15% voltage uh, increment or more voltage than you require. So if we can take that everyone down to 220 volts, you're reducing everyone's kilowatt hour consumption. Fantastic. And if we can fit this into a bit of a concept here, Richard, the common term that's used at the moment, this, this idea around this energy trilemma about grid stability and cost and emissions reduction, how does this voltage stabilisation fit into that framework of that energy trilemma, if you like? So you mentioned cost there before, but how does it fit into some of the other things there? So the attraction map of this technology is it addresses each of those three elements of the energy trilemma by reducing your consumption without you having to change your behavior at all, which is very important for the most customers. Most customers don't want to have to change their behavior, and most people want to see real proof that the technology you're providing them with is actually saving them the money. So without changing your behavior, we will reduce your consumption by reducing the voltage input into your house. Put quite simply, we read the voltage in a matter of microseconds, and through the technology, through the electronics in the, the eSaver box that we produce, we drop that voltage to a constant 220 volts around your house. So all of your appliances see 220 volts. Your overall household consumption is reduced by about 10%. What it does for quality is it means you have that constant voltage. We protect you from voltage surges. So if you have a 10,000 volt voltage surge, uh, if you happen to be struck by lightning, unfortunately, um, we will protect you from that. All of your appliances only ever see that constant 220 volts. And electronic appliances will, will uh, deteriorate with high voltage. High voltage causes them to heat up. Heat is the enemy of electronic appliances, so you'll reduce the life of your appliances. If you're at a constant 220 volts, you have a, higher degree, a much higher degree of power quality. And obviously, if you're reducing people's consumption, their overall consumption of kilowatt hours, you're ultimately reducing their emissions because you're reducing the demand on the grid by potentially 10% or more. If we look at this, get into the sort of weeds here for the engineers, you've got your your Ohm's equation, your V equals IR, and how that all fits together. You've got 
you know, like you mentioned, that that long feeder where you might have something close to a you know, baseload mm. coal generator, for example, and huge long feeders needing to maintain. So you've got that maybe 253 at one end and 216 down the other end. How big a problem is this in Australia that really has a, you know, a very diverse spread out grid, you know, given the, you yeah. know, the nature of, of the grid here in Australia and, and our spread out population? It is a particularly major issue here in Australia for several reasons. One is you have that geographically spread out grid. So in order for everybody to get the minimum level of power quality or voltage level, you get high voltage in in various areas that are supplying those remote areas. The second point is that with the increasing adoption of solar, especially at a residential level, what solar does is it tends to push up voltage. In order for an inverter to export to the grid, it has to export at the voltage level of the grid slightly higher. Voltage, the way I describe it, is a bit like water. It doesn't flow uphill. So if you've got a very high penetration of, of solar in certain areas, and take southeast Queensland where there's 350,000, 400,000 solar households, what you find is the voltage on the network is getting pushed up and up and up by these, 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 these residential uh, solar panels. So that means that you have high voltage, higher voltage than people require. Often you see voltage that is actually higher than a lot of the inverters can get to. Inverters, from a regulatory point of view, have to cut out at 253, 254 volts. If you have a voltage higher than that, your inverter doesn't work. It just, it is not exporting. Not only is it not exporting to the grid, it's not actually powering your own house because the voltage in your house is higher than 254 volts. So by regulating the voltage at a household level down to 220 volts, you get that energy saving for everybody, even the people who can't afford solar, So it's a very uh, equitable solution. But also, if you do have solar, your solar becomes more efficient because your solar panels are exporting to your house, supplying you at 220 volts. You've got more generation to feed into the grid. And, uh, yeah, so we've talked about that saving, but can you give us a bit of an idea? You've talked about also the longevity of, say, appliances, if you can keep the voltage down. If somebody is constantly having to, you know, 250 volts is getting delivered to your television, for example, and and in someone else's is at 220. What is the the, the practical difference? Are we talking years, or you know, and in, in how long an appliance could last? Or what kind of long term effects does does higher voltage yeah. have? So there's been a number of studies done on this in in the states and elsewhere, and. Generally, a an increase in voltage of uh, a ten percent increase in voltage would half the life of an appliance. Right. So it can have a material impact on the on the life of your, um, especially if you have the more sophisticated the appliance you have, the greater the deterioration in in the quality of the appliance. So, and I'm imagining, Richard, at an industrial level, that could really add up to a lot of money. You know, if you've got uh, heavy equipment, you know, the the heat in those sort of things really can can you know reduce their value well it's yeah. certainly at an industrial and commercial level it, yeah. it can have a big impact in, in reducing the life but also think about it from an appliance manufacturer's perspective if i'm manufacturing high quality appliances and i'm finding that i'm getting a lot of warranty claims in australia right. and the fact of the matter is that there are greater warranty claims here in australia and they belief is that this is a result of that higher voltage that is affecting the uh, the life of the uh, appliances and if we move on, Richard, to talk a bit about your hardware, can we talk about the two products you've got here? You've got the eSaver and the PowerSave. And if you want to also talk a bit about the sort of eSave Plus and the yeah. PowerSave Plus that are coming and how those products fit together from a consumer point of view. So I've talked about the eSaver, which is targeted currently at the residential level. So it's a the voltage regulation which can apply both to solar and non-solar household. 
levels and similar levels of energy savings of around 10% for both solar and non-solar housing. The power save is directed at the commercial business market. So what we've seen is that networks have changed the tariff structures under which commercial businesses are charged. Previously, you were charged for kilowatt hours, just like you are at a household level. Increasingly, networks are charging businesses for what's called KVA, kilowatt amperes. And KVA is a measure of the capacity of the network that you used when your electricity supply is coming through to you. So imagine it as the size of the pipe, the size of the wires, the size of the pipe. Different appliances, different machinery are more or less efficient in how they use electricity. And uh, that is, in layman's terms, that's what's called power factor. So power factor is a measure of the efficiency of your equipment in terms of how much capacity it uses. So if you've got a big inductive load, you will have a poor power factor. An inductive load will be something like anything with a motor, anything with a magnet circuit. A lift in particular has a particularly bad inductive load, aircon, older aircon certainly. There's a whole range of appliances in the industrial commercial scope which have poor which are inductive and have poor power factor. Uh, what we've seen in the market is that manufacturers, for example, would have a, a power factor of 0.75, 0.8 quite regularly, as would residential apartments and hotels and so on. What that means is that the amount of capacity that you are using to supply the power to your business is far greater than you need to. The reason is that inductive load requires reactive power. The reactive power requires capacity on the networks. What the power save does, what power factor correction technology does, is it, it supplies that reactive power on site through what's called capacitors. And rather than you requiring a lot of network capacity, your reactive power is provided on site through the capacitors. The concept of power factor correction has been around for a number of years, but it's tended to be very large units that create a lot of heat, they have a reactor in them, and they're not particularly accurate in their power factor correction, and they certainly are not applicable to small businesses like uh, you know, a, a corner shop or a, a hotel or a restaurant or a petrol station. What we've done is we've taken an old, once again, analog technology, brought it into the digital world, focusing on high-frequency electronics and software, and in doing that have made those traditional power factor correction units a lot smaller. We made them very modular so they can fit in easy installation at any business. The problem that we're solving is we're solving for small businesses now, a problem that they've never seen before because the tariffs have changed to charge them for that kilovolt ampere. And how would this be installed? Like, How would it interact if I've got storage, if I've got my solar inverter? Does the configuration change significantly, not just based on the loads that are in, but also, say, generation and storage technologies that various customers have? So the, uh, the power save is a very... What we focus on is a very simple installation process here. It's a two-hour installation process. has to be done by a qualified electrician. But the beauty of the units that we produce is that all of the variability and flexibility is built into the unit. You get the same unit whether you are in a small or medium, whatever your requirement is. We provide that reactive power through a digital array of capacitors with a very sophisticated software package which provides you exactly the service you need. So what that means is you just put, we produce different size units, but it's a case of one, one unit can ad adapt to whatever your requirements are throughout the day. And so it's a, a simple installation. It's a much smaller unit. It produces no heat at all. It's a much higher efficiency. And the key thing is it's all COMS enabled. So 
your performance and the performance of your power factor correction equipment, we can then send you every month a little note saying, congratulations, Anthony, your power factor correction equipment has saved you this much money this week, this month, and this is what we anticipate you'll save through the end of the year. And that kind of validation and visibility of performance is something that's really important to customers. You're listening to Beyond Zero Show, and we're speaking to Richard McKindo from Edge Electrons. Um, Richard, I just wanted to sort of expand on that point you sort of made there. First of all, if we you know look at this, first of all, what do these two systems cost? I'd just like a sort of brief outline of those things, but also a bit more about how the customer can engage with these systems. And you know, is there an app built that allows them to monitor CO2 savings, energy savings? How does a customer look at this from both those? Those two angles, the, the power save and the e-save. Okay, so first up, Matt, on the cost side, what we've seen from the market is most customers at the commercial side will be looking for a four-year payback or better out of their investment. That's generally where small, medium-sized businesses are. What our power save device will do is it will reduce your overall electricity bill by about 10%. It will reduce your network charges, which make up 50% of your bill by about 20%. But the overall benefit is about 10% reduction in your bill. And most of the customers that we're looking at in Queensland, we were looking at around a one and a half to three year payback. Slightly uh, higher, two to four years in New South Wales, South Australia and Victoria. That's because the tariffs are different. And people with poor power factor, customers with poor power factor, are not getting penalised as much as they are in Queensland. But generally, uh, we would say, I'd say 80% of our customers, we're looking at a four-year payback or better. The key thing that we found actually in approaching customers is that rather than saying put cash down now and it'll pay for itself over the next four years, we offer a fully financed product. So zero cash down and you pay for it out of your savings. Now that runs into your second, the second part of your question, Matt, which is how do the customers see this? What's the visibility? Because all of our appliances have got this full comms package, they can see how much they're saving out of it. So then you can actually see what your savings are, see what your financing costs are, and be comfortable that you're kind of cash positive at the end of the day. And I think it's that visibility of performance that is really important to, to customers. So, Richard, um, with any sort of startup, you know, like the one you've got here, invariably, just if we take a look at the market opportunity here, you're invariably trying to make something a bit more efficient or you're disrupting someone. So, you know, if you look at the market participants at the moment, you know, who are you sort of helping and who are you disrupting in terms of uh, you know, the product and services you're offering here? Because you've got a lot of value streams. So, yeah. you know, you, you know just no, it from that point of view. It's a really good question, actually. I mean, it's, I mean, I think with a background in, in retailing, what was really important to me is that you've got to really kind of focus on what the customer is looking for and, what, and, and keep that customer right at the center of everything. There's a temptation sometimes with technology to fall in love with the technology and forget that the guy who's losing it at the end of the day is the customer and he's probably not as excited about power factor correction as you are. <laughs> um, and uh, so keep, keep it simple. The other thing is don't you know, don't, make, don't overcomplicate it so that the customer needs to change his behavior. The customer, you know, electricity supply, people don't want to change their behavior. They just want to carry on with doing their, you know, their busy lives. And that's what we've tried to do here is provide a, you know, a service to customers that doesn't require them to change their behavior. Who do we disrupt? Straight out. First up, it's the current electrical supplier. So, you know, people like a, you know, a maybe B or a, a Schneider or someone like that who, who provides power factor correction technology or other electrical technology. We're disrupting them by providing a service that is lower cost, more efficient, easier to install, uh, and more attractive to customers. At a second level, with adoption of this, if you're reducing customers' energy consumption, you are 
going to be reduced. You're, you're going to be impacting both the energy retailers, the generators, and the networks. And ultimately, I see this technology together with the other technologies that you've shown on the on the show as disrupting that current, what is really a twenty, very much twentieth century industry of electricity supply by making people more efficient, uh, by reducing peak demand, by reducing overall energy consumption. And that's where the big disruption is. And it's the kind of disruption you saw in the telco industry in the 1990s. It's happening here and now in, 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 in the uh, electricity supply industry. But given, uh, I mean, I want to maybe use an example back to Steve Jobs, perhaps, um, that you, you, he took a meeting with the guys who developed Dropbox, maybe, you know, not many years before he, he passed. And he said to them, Guys, you don't really have a product here. You've got a feature. <laughs> and, um, and I look at this and I think this technology should really be built into every single meter coming into a house, into an inverter perhaps. Um, d- does a, a discrete product, is that necessarily the future of, of your business or would you see it being something that's built into a lot of the technology that, is, that, that people are going to install anyway? Yeah, obviously the greatest benefit from this will be if everybody has this technology on their house. You know, the ability to reduce everyone's consumption by 10% is is very attractive. Unless you're actually a, a generator, mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty attractive to everyone else. And there's not a lot of losers in there other than your, you know, your big coal-fired generator. The second attraction of this is as well as providing you individually with that energy saving by lower consumption, if you aggregate... 20,000, 30,000 customers and have the ability in real time to adjust their consumption. Don't forget, all of these products are comms enabled, so we can switch the voltage up and down at different times of the day. So if you get to 4 o'clock in the afternoon, when you get that afternoon peak when everyone's at work and then domestic appliances are coming on as well, you get the afternoon peak. At that point in time, we can actually reduce peak demand by lowering voltage across a community of 20 or 30,000 households. Now, that has an attraction not only in just lowering the price at that single point, but if you can shave the peak by 5%, you can reduce the overall wholesale cost of electricity dramatically. There's currently the high prices that people are paying in South Australia and Victoria, and the reason that uh, retail tariffs have gone up is because of the price of that peak the price of peak demand power, if you can control that peak and reduce that by just 5%, you will reduce the overall wholesale cost of price of electricity dramatically. Ultimately, you start making those peaking power stations redundant because you put this technology together with a battery, you're starting to see 5 or 10% peak demand capability to manage that down. And ultimately, I see the, the, the real disruptive effect of this technology and batteries together as being almost making peaking power almost redundant. And then you've got wholesale generation, and it'll be a case of who is the lowest marginal cost wholesale generator. And wholesale electricity prices will end up being just priced off that lowest marginal cost generator. So it's really No more $10,000 an hour. No, no more $10,000 an hour. (laughs) But if you've got, I mean, you've talked about if you can aggregate all of this, but would that all have to be aggregated under your umbrella or would anybody doing power correction across the network be able to bid separately and have that overall effect for the grid? Uh, Ultimately, it it will be achievable by having more people all over the, the grid. It's not going to be something that individual people, I think, are going to be bidding into the, uh, into the network by themselves. That's just, it's not a cost-effective way to do it. But if you can aggregate it as a retailer who has right. 
50,000 of the of customers with this capability. That becomes a very powerful tool. So going back to your original question, Anthony, who's the best person to implement this? It's obviously someone who's either at a network level or a large retail level, rather than having... Yeah, individual customers trying to bid in themselves. I want to just pull back on that, on that point a little bit there, Richard, because at the moment you're looking at this from the point of view of you know a retailer and keeping the power with those the individual end users. Is there the potential that we could actually have a, a grown-up system approach and be able to allocate capital more efficiently, putting your dotting your devices around a grid rather than having every individual needing to own them? Can it be used at a system level? and get the utilities on board. And and as a follow-up to that question, why would the utilities um, who make a return based on what they invest want to go with a cheaper product like yours <laughs> rather than a more expensive one. I mean, what's what's changing there? You're obviously dealing with these guys. But that traditionally in the past, that, that you know, they've yeah. spent a lot on grids. So the people who have the greatest visibility, in theory, are the electricity utilities. Unfortunately, the rollout of smart meters has been thwarted in this country by the what was quite a uh, disastrous rollout here in Victoria where the real benefits of the smart meter were not communicated and the cost at that point in time was 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 pretty uh, prohibitive for for the customers but Ultimately, it should be the network companies who have visibility across their network. They can see where the power quality issues are. They can see where managing voltage is going to improve the overall quality and stability of the grid. They would be the logical people to put these devices in across the network and then operate them accordingly. Why would our cheaper device be attractive to people who are have a history of adopting um, gold-plated solutions to network issues? Well, I think that just comes down to the overall price of electricity at the moment. It is inconceivable to me that with the, prices, the price of electricity going up and up and up, that network companies would not be obliged to or encouraged to take the route of the low-cost solution. Quite frankly, if they don't, they'll start to lose their social license to operate. Richard, I want to move on to the sort of the concept of microgrids here. That's something we interview a lot of people on the show about, uh, you know, microgrids and, and, and how this might impact end users. It follows on from that question I sort of, you know, mentioned to you earlier about how you could use this as a systems approach. They're obviously, they're going to be relevant in, you know, regional parts of Queensland, regional parts of Victoria, and clearly there's a market for this stuff overseas. Uh, is there a potential for your technology to be used as that sort of shock absorber, like you mentioned, in terms of voltage, combined with battery systems to provide a complete low-cost microgrid solution? Can it work as part of that system to, you know, to, to deliver that sort of low-cost microgrid? Yeah, I think that the microgrid is going I, I personally believe it will develop, and it will certainly in a country like Australia, it, it is a natural place for the microgrid to, to, to evolve because of the just the cost of having a uh, such a, a wide system. I mean, the, if you look at the overall cost of running the grid in Australia, it's similar to the cost of it's just slightly less than running the overall grid in, in the United States. And given the relative populations there, that's a remarkable statistic. Mm. But it's also it's a reflection of the fact that it is a big, you know, it's a big drawn out grid that we have here. So microgrids, I think, are the natural way to to, to go. And I think for any you know, a microgrid situation, having the ability. Um, a cost effective to cost effectively manage power quality through voltage regulation and other technologies that are out, out there in the market. But having that as the ability to do that in a cost effective way for a smaller microgrid, I think, is really important. The challenge that you have with, for microgrids is that th- currently 
they are burned with very high network costs. So it's it's that being being able to introduce efficiency at that small individual level or on a microgrid level. I think this is where the technology is going to go. Can I just give a follow up there on on microgrids and the sense? Of why would it be important to cordon off a part of the network and call it a microgrid, like logically or commercially? rather than just having all of the individual users who may be at a, a sort of a remote part of the network um, participating independently to ensure that they can get still get service collectively. What value is there in drawing a line around something and saying that's a microgrid? The regulatory requirement is to maintain the overall power quality within a certain bandwidth. And voltage, it's anywhere between 216 volts and 253 volts. In order for everybody to, to be within that, that voltage range, just from a, per, from a voltage perspective, the guy at the end of the line to get 216 volts, I as a network have to be tapping the voltage and managing the voltage in this quite inefficient and expensive way to solve for the guy who's living at the end of the, uh, of the line in where, whatever remote part of Victoria or North, North Queensland he is. It is far more cost-effective to put generation near that guy with low-cost, efficient power quality management capability, such as the voltage regulation that we've got. It is far more efficient to do that than to keep managing him from a, from a far more remote area near to the, the centralised generation. Okay. Just because we've always built generation on top of coal fields doesn't mean that it always has <laughs> to be to. there. You know, it, it, the closer you can get that generation to the customer, and we've got a lot of sunshine in this country, and battery technology is getting us as well there as well, the more efficient they're going to be, as long as you also have the ability to maintain the power quality, and that's the kind of technology that we have here. And Richard, sort of just expanding on that there, you know, we've interviewed a lot of people and, and there's this spot that's above one megawatt where the solutions aren't modular enough to make this stuff work. You know, do you, do you see this working at this magical 200 to 400 micro, I'm going to call it a micro micro grid, <laughs> you know, at that level, you've got a very cheap, small scale, modular solution. Can it penetrate that little tiny market? But it's a small market on its own, but globally, it's a huge market. <laughs> I think that, yes, it absolutely can. And smaller communities with the ability to start exchanging power between them, there is a cost-efficient way for a small community to generate, store, and exchange power amongst themselves. There is no doubt at all about that. And I think that you know people say it's never going to happen. Completely wrong. It will happen, and it's happening a lot quicker than people expect it to. Right, thank you. And uh, we're just almost about to finish up here on the Beyond Zero show. And we, we wanted to finish this just to talk about the 100% renewables. And obviously, Beyond Zero uh, has, Emissions has been advocating that for a long time. And uh, as someone who has come from the, the large energy industry and, and an industry that is coming to the realisation that at least very high penetrations of renewables are possible, where do you think it's gone in the last few years in terms of the discussion, but also technically, and, and how do you see the future bearing out for, for the source of our, of our energy supply? So I think that nobody five years ago thought that the price of solar would have fallen as rapidly as it has over the last five years. You can take Moore's law, and it's even more than Moore's law. More than and, Moore's. And, <laughs> and it's, Moore's, it's Moore's plus... Plus plus, and that is you know that's symptomatic. There's a huge amount of smart people looking at this industry at the moment. The energy technology industry, especially at the low voltage end of the uh, spectrum, 
is one of the most exciting spaces at the moment in terms of new technology. And what's happened with solar is going to happen with storage. There's no doubt about that as well. And it's also happening with the kind of technologies that Edge Electrons has and making, bringing energy efficiency to more people. So I think that we are really at the point where there's going to be a huge transformation in the electricity supply industry. Will it go to 100% renewables? It, it could go to 100% renewables. There's no physical law that says that electricity could, should be 100% coal or 100% renewables. I think that the dynamic here is that costs are coming down, whereas those coal costs, they're not coming down. They're definitely not coming down. They're probably going up, and especially if there's a carbon price taken into account. And I think you're also getting to a tipping point as far as consumer habits are concerned. People want this to happen. They didn't want it to happen five years ago, but people now... The population of this country has seen their electricity prices going up 20% this year on top of rises last year, the year before. We've got customers who've seen a 100% increase in their electricity price when they've renewed this year. We've reached a tipping point where the community wants to see a change. And that's where I think is that's going to be one of the most important factors in moving this country towards that 100% renewables target. And Richard, uh, we'd like to sort of wrap the interview up. Thank you very much for your time today. But is there anywhere where listeners can sort of uh, find out a bit more about this technology and maybe reach out to you if they've got any uh, any more questions? Certainly, yeah, Matt. Well, the uh, the Edge Electrons website, www.edgeelectrons.com, has details about all of our technologies, uh, the voltage regulation, the power save, and uh, other technologies that we're developing. We also have a uh, inquiries and registration point on there where people can register their interest and what we call the Solar IQ, which is going to be the uh, voltage regulation device for, for solar households out in the market in Queensland at the moment, but we'll be launching that on a national basis over the next couple of months. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Richard, for joining us today. Thanks very much, Guy. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero show brought to you by the Climate Solutions Think Tank Beyond Zero Emissions. To find out more about what we do, visit us at bze.org.au. My name's Anthony Daniel. I'm Matt Grantham. We'll see you next time. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.